Lord's Day. What a wonderful time to come together and to be able to study the Word of God and worship together. The music's already been great. And I'll tell you what, the Lord has been so gracious to supply this beautiful sanctuary to worship in. I look forward to this every time we come up. In fact, I was telling a few people in our church, well, we'd love to just take this thing and transport it right down there where we are. We could use a little bit more room, and this, I think this would help us out. But anyway, thank God for it, and so praise the Lord. Well, what we did this morning, which I'll share with you now, we started a, a new book. We're going through Second Thessalonians, and we started that this morning. And uh, we spent five years in the Gospel of John, and now we're going through this book, Second Thessalonians, uh, verse by verse. You may wonder why Second Thessalonians and not the first. And the reason why is because I've already been through the first. And uh, it was been probably, well, probably six years ago that I went through First Thessalonians when we were still in our other building. So I had stopped and not finished up the rest of Thessalonians because we'd spent a lot of time on the return of Christ in the last two chapters of First Thessalonians. And I thought we could just use a break and go through another book, which took us a long time. But today, I want to begin this book with you. And I want to talk about characteristics of a faithful church. Characteristics of a faithful church. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1 through 5 for our reading this afternoon. The Word of God says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. One of the things I'm sure all of us in this room are familiar with, that in the last few decades, there's been a tremendous shift in how one views the church and ministry. A lot of the success of the church is determined by pragmatism rather than a purely biblical approach Many churches determine the use of a program or the means of worship on how successful it is. And success is determined really basically by budgets, bodies, and buildings. It is, if you're growing in those three areas, it is assumed that you're successful. If you're seeing an increase in giving, then you're successful. If you're seeing an increase in attendance, then you are deemed successful. If you are gaining a need for another building, then you must have God working on your behalf and you are successful. But none of these things are actually what God considers to be successful. In fact, God is not looking for the church at all to make itself successful because he has already determined that it would be successful. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said in his own words, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So it will succeed. The church will accomplish the mission and what God has ordained, nothing will stop it. And the success has nothing to do with buildings. It has nothing to do with budgets because God owns everything anyway. 
The book of Acts even tells us that the church of that time turned the world upside down for Christ with no buildings and no budget. And success has nothing to do with bodies. And whenever I say that, a lot of people think, well, you must be wrong, Pastor. I mean, aren't we to reach people for Christ? But understand what I'm saying. The success has nothing to do with bodies because God has already determined how many bodies will make up the body of Christ. That is set. And there will be no changing of that. So God's not looking for us to make a successful ministry. He's looking for faithfulness in ministry and fidelity to the truth. We are to be faithful to Christ. We are to be faithful to his church. And we are to be faithful to the truth, which produces the results of faithfulness to Christ and the church. Sadly, though, we are in the midst of a very, very shallow an inaccurate view of ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. And we also are just consumed in the evangelical world with a wrong view of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. And the goal of both of those inaccurate views is to get as many bodies in the church as possible by whatever means. As long as you can get swelling budgets and swelling buildings. Whatever means. So whenever you believe that, that you will do whatever it takes to get bodies in the building, then you end up with clown shows. You end up with zip lines, rock bands, wrestling matches, and you end up with pastors using squirt guns and gimmicks to draw crowds. And I didn't make all that up. That's actually being done today. And you also get churches that have dark, auditoriums that are like theaters instead of houses of worship where light dwells. Whatever the culture is doing is what the church will do. And it will bring in the culture into its church for the purpose of making the church less offensive to the world so that the world will not be uncomfortable whenever it comes to worship with the people of God. The church today offers coffee and cake and communion and a comfortable atmosphere for worship. All of this is an attempt to evangelize the lost. It's under the umbrella of evangelization. And the main goal is to make sure you do not make the lost uncomfortable in the pew or the chair. So we have reduced the power of the gospel to how the pastor dresses or the color of the lights on the stage or the theater experience or the style of music or the absence of a pulpit. We believe that if we have all of these things, then the gospel will be more effective. It absolutely astounds me even to this day that many within the evangelical church would say that the salvation of the soul, the resurrection from death to life and the granting of saving faith and repentance to God's elect depends on the color of the lights on the stage. But that's exactly what we're told. The New Testament church had none of this. And they radically changed the world for Christ. From the pattern of the New Testament church to now, there has been a major shift and it's not in the right direction. We are now more faithful to the non-essentials than we are committed to the essentials. We worry about the things that don't matter and discard the things that do matter. 
We will do everything we are not supposed to do so that we, will, we don't have to do what we really should do. I've seen churches do everything possible to reach the lost except speak the gospel outside the walls of the building. Everything else but. And you have to understand, God cares nothing about your blue lights and your stage presence. He's not moved by your theater chairs and your coffee dispensers. And it does not matter to him whether you purchase your clothes with holes already in them. And he's not impressed with your good looks and your personality. And he could care less how many people follow you on social media. If you listen to Paul's approach to ministry, and you can turn there because I know you're familiar with it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you have Paul's approach to ministry. In fact, if, if you were to take the Apostle Paul and place him in many of the evangelical churches today, he would be kicked out. He would be considered outdated, not effective, not pragmatic enough, uh, not able to be successful enough, and offensive. The Apostle Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1 and following these words about how he does ministry. Whenever he came into Corinth, he did not come with bells and whistles. He did not come with programs. He came preaching Christ and him crucified. Chapter 2, verse 1. I and I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And here's the point. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What you have today is a lot of conversions to the methods of men, and not the power of God. There are decisions that are being made, but they're not decisions for Christ. They're decisions to follow a ministry, or be influenced by a ministry. Paul came preaching Christ and only Christ. He cared nothing about all the other things that people were believing would accomplish the ministry. He did not come with persuasive words or human wisdom or eloquence of speech. He did not adopt the wisdom of the world. He came preaching Jesus Christ and the cross. And as he says in chapter one, is an offense to the world and is foolishness to those who are perishing. The very message that many would deem today is offensive the very message that many would deem to be something that should not be said clearly is the very message that Paul preached. And as you know from history, we know that Paul had a great effect. And one of the places he had a great effect was the Thessalonian church. And he had a great effect not because he was a great orator necessarily or he was a good looking man. Everything historically tells us he wasn't. And everything historically tells us he wasn't a great orator. But we do know he came preaching Christ and preaching Christ faithfully. And God used the power of the gospel in a godly man to accomplish the ministry and to establish a church. So whenever you look at this, we begin to consider the characteristics of a faithful church. This is not something that most churches would give any attention to at all. In fact, if you were to go into any average bookstore or look online regarding church growth or ministry or methodology, you're not going to find any of these. These are not going to be mentioned. 
They might be pointed out in passing, maybe a verse here or a verse there, but they're not the theme. They're not the reason why a church is considered faithful. But a faithful church is what God desires. And he's not concerned about the smallness of it or the largeness of it. That has no issue to God at all. The issue is, are you faithful? Are you faithful to him and faithful to his word? Are you considering not just some of his word, but all of his word? Are you willing and faithful to preach not just some of it? Or are you willing to preach all of it? Are you faithful to him and his word? So when we, when we consider the church of Thessalonica, I want to back up just for a moment and go to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. So back up to the first letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, and that's chapter 1. And I want to point out to you a couple of characteristics before we even consider the faithful characteristics of a church. And the things I want to point out here are rather obvious, and I think most of us would know them, but they are important to understand that we don't assume certain things about any church. If you're going to be a faithful church, then you have to have these things in place. And these are mentioned in the first letter of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian church. And I'll begin in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians and verse 4. And what I would like to point out to you, one of the most obvious things that I think most people would assume to be the case is that the church was a saved church. They were a saved church. They were a group of regenerated people. You'll be surprised as to how many churches will have large populations of membership, but very few of them actually attend the church. Whenever I was down in Florida recently, I was talking to one of my relatives down there, and they attend a rather large church in Florida. And I asked him, I said, so how many do y'all have in this church? And I didn't qualify my question enough, because then he said, well, we have 4,500. I said, okay. I said, how many actually come to the church? And he said, 2,000. I said, so you have 2,500 people that don't come to your church that are members. He said, yes. That's normal among many churches in America. They have large populations of membership, but most of the people don't come. They don't even attend the local church. One of the things that the Southern Baptist Convention has done for years is to, to publish their membership and to speak proudly about where they are as far as their membership is concerned. One of the last statements was, I believe after they counted some of the uh, departures within the SBC, is that the SBC was running around 14 million members. But if you actually look at the stats, there's only about 9 million who attend. So they've lost a lot of people. They don't even show up and they don't even know where they are as far as that is concerned. And the point was is that Paul wasn't concerned about that. He had a group of people in Thessalonica that were saved. They were regenerated. There was not a group of people in the church that were lost and then a group that were saved. They were a saved church. Secondly, well, let me read the verse, first of all, why he knows this. Look at verse 4. It says that Paul knew, or he knows, beloved brethren, your election of God. That is a definite statement that Paul knows that these are the elect of God. And he doesn't know because they have an E stamp on their back. He knows because they have characteristics that show that they are truly regenerated. They are called here in verse 4, the beloved of God or the beloved brethren. He uses that word beloved of God later on in that same book. But the point is, he knew they were elect because they, they showed forth the fruits of salvation. The evidence was there. The second point about this church was it was a suffering church. 
You look at verse 6. It says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. So they were saved in the context of persecution. They were saved in the context of suffering. They weren't saved in a perfect environment or an easy environment or a prosperous environment. They were saved in the context of affliction. In other words, once you named the name of Christ, they zeroed in on you and persecuted you and your family. We'll see that a little later on. The third point about the church was they were sanctified. Verse 7 says, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. And then verse 9 says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. The point about this church was it was a church that had turned from turned to God from their idols to truly serve the one living and true God. And they became, verse 7, examples. They were a sanctified people. They were a holy people. They had turned to the true God away from their idols and became examples of purity and holiness to the rest of the Thessalonica area. In fact, you could read the books, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And what is most amazing about those two books is that Paul will give unqualified commands over and over and over again. Unlike 1st Corinthians, whenever he would write a command or give a command, he has to give reasons why you should do this or reasons why you should not do this. And he gives argumentation as to the reasons. When you come to Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians, what you find is that God gives this command, or Paul gives this command, this command, this command, and there's no reason. There's no proof. There's no like, well, you really need to do this. It's over and over and over again throughout those books. And the reason why is all he had to do was introduce to them what God said, and that was enough. They were willing to follow it. So they were a sanctified church, and then forth they were a sharing church. Verse 8 says, and from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, listen to this, so that we do not need to say anything. Now that's an amazing statement. What Paul is saying is this, if I were to come back into Thessalonica and see the need to preach the gospel, I wouldn't have a need to do it. Because you've already saturated the entire place. And by the way, by that time, we, we know that there were over 200,000 in population in Thessalonica when Paul was there. So these people are evangelizing. They're sharing their faith wherever they go, wherever they live. They're talking to people. So much so that whenever Paul says, if I were to be there, your faith is already going out. So much so that we don't need to say anything. That would be absolutely astounding. And the fifth thing about the church is this. Is a second coming church. A second coming church. You find that in verse 10. It says that they were waiting for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. One of the things about both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Is that they are filled with scriptures. Related to the return of Christ. Paul was teaching them about the return of Christ. And they were so eager. And so willing to look forward to the coming of Christ. They literally believed that Jesus could come at any moment in their life. And some of them had quit their jobs, eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. Because later on in chapter 3, and also in 1 Thessalonians, Paul had to correct their idleness, that they needed to work with their hands. Because some of them were loafing, some of them were not doing what they were supposed to do, some of them, some of them were depending upon others to feed them, because they thought, hey, the Lord's coming back, why worry about any of this mess, let's just get together, relax, and wait on it. And that's what they were doing. 
So this church was a saved church. It was a suffering church. It was a sanctified church. It was a sharing church. And it was a second coming church. But let me give you just a quick history of it, though, just so you'll know about it as far as from a secular standpoint. The area of Thessalonica used to be called Therma. It was called Therma because there were some warm mineral springs there and people used to go there and enjoy them. Thessalonica was founded in 315 BC by a Greek general under Alexander the Great by the name of Cassander. Cassander chose the area because of the thermal springs. He also chose it because it was a crucial place that had the north, uh, northmost point on the Aegean Sea. It also had the highway, the Aegean Highway, that ran from east to west. And it was a very important part of the trade and commerce of that area. The Axius River was also there that gave a great access to a harbor. It was a strategic place that he chose. The word Thessalonica, or the name Thessalonica, came from his wife. Uh, his wife was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. And whenever he chose this place, he named the city after her, and her name was Thessalonica. In 146 BC, Thessalonica was uh, de designated the capital of the whole province of Macedonia. When you hear the word Macedonia, think of Greece, and northern Greece specifically, because that's what it is today. The nickname of that area then was called the Mother of Macedonia. So Thessalonica was called the Mother of that area. And as I told you, during the time of Paul, the population was around 200,000. Today, if you go there, it's around 813,000 people. And that's what Thessalonica is like then. As I told you, it was a, a trade center. It was a very important hub of that time. There was a total sheltered harbor. Uh, it was a seaport, a thriving seaport. It was filled with soldiers that would be traversing back and forth along the Ignatius Highway. It was filled with businessmen and travelers and traders. It was filled with sailors. It was a booming place. Lots of people came through there. But it also was famous for its vice and for its sin because it had sexual perversion off the charts. Prostitution was rampant and well-organized. People actually built their homes there with no windows, only one door. And the reason why is so that their children would not be able to look outside the windows and see the perversions in the streets. And also there were things that were painted on the walls of the homes. And so you didn't want your, your family or your children looking out the windows to see all the perversions painted on the walls of the houses. It was a very lascivious city, a sin-filled city. It also had divorce, and divorce was very, very frequent. They had abortion, but their abortion was a little different than ours. What they would do to abort their baby is they would throw it outside and leave it to die. That's how they aborted their children. Also, there was murder, and murder was common in those days. That's why one of the reasons why they only had one door and no windows, so that you couldn't get in except through that one door. So this whole situation of sewage and perversion and paganism was the place that God placed a new church. He planted a church, not in a nice area, not in a nice neighborhood, not with a whole bunch of nice people, but a whole bunch of pagans involved in all types of perversion. That's where he planted the church. Paul, whenever he came there initially, there was a large Jewish population in Thessalonica. There was a large synagogue there that he visited the first time he showed up there as he normally would. 
the Jewish population remained all the way up even to World War II, whenever there was about 60,000 Jews that were taken captive by Hitler, and eventually he executed every one of them. So this was a unique place. It had a great, great history, a long history, an interesting history. Paul arrives on the scene about 49 or 50 AD, and he's there for the purpose of actually establishing and planting this church by God's design. And I want to show you how that design worked out. So if you'll take your Bibles and just turn to chapter 16 of Acts. Acts chapter 16, we'll begin to see the formulation of this wonderful church at Thessalonica. Acts chapter 16, verse 9. The Word of God says, Now when they had gone out through Phrygia, this is Acts 16, 6. Acts 16, 6. Now when they had gone out through Phrygia and through the region of Galatia, They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now you need to stop there just for a moment and digest that because that is one of the most amazing statements in the Bible. That here you have Paul who has been in the region of Galatia. That's where Ephesus is and Galatia and Philippi and that whole area of Asia Minor. And he's actually heading west. And as he goes west, he wants to go south. And instead of going south, the Holy Spirit says, nope, you're not going there and you're not going to preach there. Think about that for a moment. There are lost people in that part of Asia. There are people who are dying and going to hell in that part of Asia. But God says through the Holy Spirit to Paul, you are not permitted to go there. That's not where I want you to go. And then in verse 7 it says, And after they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go up to Bithynia, which is north. But the Spirit did not permit them. So they couldn't go south. They couldn't go north. They already came from the east. And so they only had one place to go, west. And so they took off west and came to Troas. And there is where verse 9 occurs. A vision appeared to them, or appeared to Paul at night, a man, and listen to this, where? Macedonia. That's northern Greece. That's Thessalonica. So... A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul didn't go south. He didn't go north. He waited in Troas. God told him where to go. He went to Macedonia. Macedonia is Thessalonica. You pick it up in Acts 17, where the story is when Paul arrived there in Thessalonica. Acts 17, 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. As it says, it was Paul's custom to do this. He would go to the Jew first, then the Greek. He would go into the synagogue, because they were most familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures, and he would reason with them, hopefully, to win some of them to Christ, so that he would have a basis to begin a church. He would already have people educated in the Old Testament, all he would have to do is show them in the Bible that Jesus is the Messiah, and then they would believe, and then they would become the basis and the foundation upon which the church would grow. He comes to them, and it says he reasoned with them from the Scripture, which is interesting. It does not say he keruso, he did not preach to them, he did not yoangelizo, he did not herald them the gospel, he sat down with them, and dialogomai, he dialogued with them. He listened to them, 
He talked to them. He answered their questions. They went back and forth on the scriptures. He showed them, I'm sure many of the scriptures we're all familiar with, like Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 53, Genesis chapter 3, 15, many of the other ones that we know reflect on the Messiah himself. And they, of course, listened to what he had to say. It says in verse 3, he explained and demonstrated that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ or the Messiah. Notice verse 4. And some of them were persuaded. Another way of saying some of them believed. Some of the Jews were persuaded. But it gets better than that because in verse 4 it says, And a great multitude of devout Greeks. The devout Greeks were usually Greeks that had adopted the one true God like the Jews did. But they didn't know the Messiah. So they now were convinced a great multitude of the Greeks believed. And then even it says in verse 4, and not a few of the leading women. In other words, a large number of prominent women in that area believed and were persuaded. And listen to this, joined Paul and Silas. The church started. Think about that. You go into an area, you preach for two weeks, maybe three at the most, And now you have a large population of people that have already converted, given their life to Christ, of Jews, Gentiles, and ladies. And there they are now with enough people to start the church in Thessalonica. But that wasn't where it ended. It would be nice if that was the end of the story. That they prospered and things went well and everybody loved them, invited them over to their garden parties and gave them nice tea. But that's not what happened. As soon as this happened, as soon as they were converted, verse 5 says, but the Jews. What Jews? The Jews that didn't believe. The Jews that did not convert. The ones that were not persuaded, as it says. They became envious. Why? Because there was a large group of people that now were following Paul and Silas. And it says, they took some evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob and set all the city in an uproar. And attack the house of Jason. Well, why would they do that? Because Jason, as it says later on, harbored them, protected them, took them in to protect Paul and Silas. It says they attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these men have turned the world upside down and now have come here to do the same. Jason had harbored them. And these were all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there's another king, his name's Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken the security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So things didn't start off too well, did it? I mean, they got saved, they got uh, born again, these people of Thessalonica, and immediately the persecution started right out the gate coming from the Jewish community. It says as a result of that in verse 10, that the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night into Berea. And we know the rest of the story from there, that they went to the Bereans and they were more noble than these and were willing to listen to the scriptures and reason to see whether those things were so. What is amazing about this whole thing is, is that this church was born in the midst of paganism and persecution. Everything that you would be told would be the worst possible scenario for a church to be born would be in a sea of paganism, idolatry, sexual perversion, 
that would not be the place you would want to plant a church. But then also, it was planted in the context of hostility. The whole community was against them. The town was against them. The government was against them. The only thing they had was themselves and Paul, Silas, and Timothy. That's what they had. So it wasn't the best of situations, but I grant you this, based upon what we read in the book of Acts, it was clear that it was the sovereignty of God to plant that church right there. Right in that area. Right in the midst of that. Regarding many of the churches in the New Testament that Paul wrote to, and especially even the seven churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus moves through and evaluates, the vast majority of the churches have many problems. Many problems. Like what one European theologian by the name of Reinhold Kibor wrote cynically, quote, the church is like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the storm outside, we couldn't stand the stink inside. But that's the way a lot of people look at church. You know, those people have a lot of problems down there. Or as some have said, they're just full of hypocrites. You've heard that, I'm sure, many times. And sadly, in some churches, that's true. And sadly, in some churches, there are a lot of problems. In some churches, they are like the church of Corinth. They are saturated with division and strife and immaturity and sexual sin and lack of discipline and the problem with leadership and the list goes on and on and on. It happens many, many times in many churches. But that was not the case with Thessalonica. In fact, this would be the church that if you were looking as a young pastor going into a church and you would think I have a choice to pastor here or pastor there, you would think, I want that church. I want Thessalonica. I don't want Corinth. I want Thessalonica. It's the people who are growing in the Lord, maturing in the Lord, love the word of God, love the people of God, and are willing to be persecuted and are willing to share the gospel no matter what comes their way. That's what Thessalonica was. It was a wonderful church, a faithful church, a God-honoring church. It was a church that you could model your church after. It would be a church that many would go to in a conference and say, what are you guys doing so I could bring it back to my church and try to plant it in my church so that my church would succeed. They weren't known for their buildings. They didn't have any. They weren't known for their swelling budgets. They didn't have any money. They weren't known for large crowds because they didn't have those. They weren't known for their leadership because nobody even knows who pastored them. Paul and Timothy and Silas moved on. We don't even know who were the final leaders of that church. They're not mentioned at all as far as by name. And they weren't known by their programs. Nobody knew what they did and how they did it. They didn't have to come up with a program and fill it with people so that they could get it done. They naturally did what they knew God wanted them to do, which was to mature in Christ, become like Christ, and to evangelize the lost. That's what they did. Usually what you end up with, when you have programs, you have programs because people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, and you try to get them to do what they're supposed to do by having a program. But if they are actually, if they're growing in Christ, maturing in Christ, loving the Lord, loving the Word of God, loving the people of God, it comes natural. It comes natural. So if there's anything you could be known for, which this church was, they were conformed to the image of Christ and faithful to His Word and faithful to to him. Now let's go to the text for a few moments today. We won't finish it, uh, but I want to just point out a few things to you. The first thing is the address. 
I say the address because that's the way the letter starts. It starts by the author, it starts by the recipients, and then a greeting. Unlike our writing today, whenever we write a letter, we'll have the recipient listed first, then the letter, then at the end we'll state who we are or anything about us specifically that we want to mention. But in those days, everything was up front. You stated who you were, so you knew who was writing, and uh, you could begin from there. And it starts with Paul. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Paul, we know Paul was the man that was saved on the Damascus Road. He was the man that was in charge of trying to gather more Christians from Damascus to bring them back to be tried, tried and eventually, I'm sure, put to death. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. He was the man consenting to the death of believers. He was a man who believed that the Christian way was a false religion and that Jesus was not the Messiah. But then on the road to Damascus, Jesus found him. He didn't find Jesus. Jesus found him. And he showed up, radically converted Paul, and, or Saul, and he changed his name to Paul, which, by the way, means little, and moved him out to be a missionary to the Gentiles. He was going to kill Christians. Now he becomes a missionary to the ones he was going to go after. So it's an interesting thing to consider this man, Paul. He is the author of 2 Thessalonians, He's no doubt probably the writer. Maybe Sylvanus served as a secretary and wrote down some of the things that Paul said. He often would use someone to do that as he would speak the word or speak forth the letter and then someone else would write it down for him. Second Thessalonians is widely accepted as having been written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. In fact, even writers outside and authors outside of the scripture themselves believe it to be so. Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Ignatius all affirmed that Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians, and there's even some allusion in the Didache that Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians. So it was assumed and understood that Paul wrote the letter, and that it was inspired of God, that it was indeed the very words of God himself. Now, Silvanus was, or Silas, as he's often called, was a very familiar character in Paul's life. He was a side partner of Paul in the second missionary journey. He also was the one that ended up in jail with Paul on one occasion. As I told you, he may have served as a secretary with Paul, accomplishing some of his needs. Timothy was the devoted and very dear son to Paul in the faith. Timothy was the one that we know from the rest of Scripture was probably converted under the teaching of his grandmother and learned the faith through her. But then eventually he became a believer and as a result became a minister or a pastor. We know he pastored the church at Ephesus. We know he spent a great deal of time with the apostle Paul and they was trained directly by him. So in this case, Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy are all mentioned in this letter. They're also mentioned in 1 Thessalonians too. So they're involved, heavily involved in the church of Thessalonica. Let's turn our attention now in verse 1 to another word here. He says, to the church, to the church of, Thessal of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 1. You see, Paul wanted to go to this church. He desired to go to it according to the first letter. But in chapter 2, verse 18, it says Satan hindered him and he couldn't go. So he writes the second letter. He writes it for three reasons. The first is the persecution. He wants to personally encourage them to persevere, to stick with it, to be bold, to be confronted, to make sure you don't give in to the pressure. 
He wants to encourage them in their persecution. Secondly, he wants to straighten out a mess regarding the end times or eschatology. There were some letters that were circulating around. Some of them had signed the name of the Apostle Paul or some of the leadership. And it said that Jesus Christ had already come or the day of the Lord had come, at least, and the wrath of God was upon us. That would not have settled well with the Thessalonians because they were under intense persecution at that time. And they may have believed that they were under the wrath of God at that time. So they were really concerned as to whether or not they missed the entire event. Jesus has come. The wrath of God has started and they missed it all. So Paul's going to write in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and sort all of that out. And then the other problem, which is mentioned in the first letter and also in the third chapter of the second letter and that is the problem of idleness. The problem of idleness that was really sprouting out of their eschatology. It was sprouting out of their problem in believing that Jesus was going to come back at any moment. And so let's just kick back, relax, and wait. And that was not prosperous at all and not helpful. So Paul addresses those three areas in this letter. But he's writing to the church, as you notice in verse 1. Very important word. We all need to understand what the church is. Because the word ecclesia means called out ones. It's two, from two words, a preposition ek, meaning out of, and then the word ecclesia or the verb form kaleo, to be called. So you are called out. The church is the called out people of God. You're called out to Christ, called out to God, called out to holiness, called out to follow, all of those words referring to the church. But you're also called to, you're called to holiness, to purity, to sacrifice, to being set apart, all of those things are part of being the ecclesia or the called out people of God. It's got a definite article, the word the in front of it, that may refer to the singular nature of the church. Simply meaning that there was only one there. There weren't many churches. You couldn't go to the first Baptist church of Thessalonica and say, you know what, I really don't like that pastor. I'm going to go down and check the church out down the road here, the second Baptist church of Thessalonica, and find another church. You couldn't do that. If you didn't like that church, you were out. That was all you had. Many of the cities were like that. Galatia, Ephesus, uh, the area of Philippi, I mean, Corinth. There weren't churches all over the place like we have today. We have them all over the place. But in those days, it was one church. It was the church of Thessalonica. And I believe that's what Paul has in mind when he uses the word church here. But I think it's also just a good thing to remind us of something. The ecclesia here, the church, is not the building. The ecclesia is the people. Uh, the church is the people. So whenever you leave this building, the church leaves this building. This is a building. It's not the church. So we are the church and we are the ones that are indwelt by God. We are the temple of God. We are the house of God. And whenever we meet together, we are the church. If we meet here, if we meet out there on the street, if we meet in another place or home, we are the church. We're not confined to a building. and The building doesn't make us the church. And too often people have that idea. And just, I understand, and I, like I told our church this morning, there is something unique about a building that is set apart for worship. I understand that. I believe it is a unique place, a special place. You could even call it a holy place. It is set apart for worship and needs to be understood like that. You don't come in here with all types of frivolity and parties and junk going on that you might even do at your own home. You don't do that because this is a place that we have set apart for worshiping God. But whenever we leave, the church leaves. And it's just a building. And that's such an important thing to understand and to keep that in mind. Because so many today have 
misunderstood that. They'll say, well, I'm going to the house of God. No, you are the house of God that's going to a building that is set apart for worship. And whenever you understand that, you get a better ecclesiology. You get a better understanding of what the church is really all about. So, you know, in the future, let's just speculate for a moment that we get a little bit more pressure than what we're used to. And before long, we get some tax fines and some other things that come against the church buildings. And before long, we're not able to to, uh, meet together as easily as we are today because if they find you meeting together, they're going to arrest you or the pastor, like happens in Canada, right? Not too far away from us. Well, we need to understand that even though we may not have a place to meet, there may not be a building that we call a church building, we still are the church. The ecclesia are the called out people of God. One other thing I would say about that is this. If we're the ecclesia, then we're called out of, we're called out of the world. We're not like the world. We should not be like the world. We should not act like the world. We should not talk like the world. We should not sing like the world. We should not entertain ourselves like the world. There's a lot of things that we are of the world that we have to deal with. We're all humans. We all dress. We all have cars. We all have homes. We have to have certain things. But the point is, there should be a distinct separation of the church from the world. Not that we don't interact with the world, not, not that we don't evangelize the world, but that we don't become like the world to reach the world, which is exactly what, sadly, the church has done. Well, verse 1 also says that this church was in God. Unique phrase, in God, our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a word that is Pauline. He likes to refer to us as in Christ. Here he even uses the term in God, which is kind of unusual for him. He usually talks about the church being in Christ. But the point is, you are in God, you are in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in God. It's all the same. You're in the deity. And it doesn't mean we become deity. It just simply means we are united with Christ in a union of salvation through regeneration. Whenever Paul says that, he's telling us that this Thessalonica church, like he did in chapter 1, of the first letter is a regenerated church. They are in Christ. Peter says it like this, we have become partakers of the divine nature. Paul believed this union with Christ so much that whenever he talked about his walk with Christ, there was no distinction between what he did and what Christ did. Let me show you what I mean. Like for instance, in Galatians, you know the verse, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives, lives in me. What does he mean by that? He says, whatever I do, Christ does. Whatever Christ does, I do. He is united with Christ. And in that union, he is saved. The greeting is given to us in verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Simple greeting, but profound. You know, we take it for granted because we've read it so many times in the New Testament, but it was unique. Because it, re- it resembles the gospel is what it does. In that very simple greeting, he uses the word grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor. It basically means you and I are getting something we don't deserve, which is what? Salvation, forgiveness, the atonement, being placed in Christ. All of those things are given to us by grace, not by works, lest we would boast. It's all by grace. So grace comes through salvation, or salvation comes through grace, rather, It comes to you, and then he says peace. Well, peace comes as a result of grace. Because the peace he's talking about here is not just the peace that passes understanding, but the peace with God. This is the passage, I think, that was read earlier, that we have peace with God. 
We are at peace with God, not hostile toward God anymore. And God is not hostile toward us anymore. We have peace with God through the grace of God that has given us right standing with him. So when Paul uses the terms, these are not just like simple, you know, placement of a few words as a placard and say, look, you know, grace and peace to you. Like, hello, brother, how are you doing? Love you. That's not the idea. He's, again, every time reminding us of the tremendous ongoing grace of God that saves us and brings us into a peaceful relationship with God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful reminder of the gospel itself. So, Paul basically tells us that we have a church that is saved, a church that is set apart, a church that is called out, a church that is reminded of its own salvation and grace and peace in the very address. But then we move to the accolades or the praise for the church. We're only going to cover one today because I didn't even finish that this morning. So I want to go into that. Whenever you think about the characteristics of a faithful church, if there's any church I would look at, it would be the Thessalonian church. I would draw out principles to find out what kind of church was that church. And I would want to model everything I did in my church based upon this church. But like I told you, the characteristics that Paul mentions here are not going to be found on the top best-selling books. They're not going to be mentioned. In fact, you'll be hard-pressed to find any book that addresses them. They just, they're, they're just not there. Because they don't sell and they're not popular and they're not glitzy and they're not going to catch your attention. But they are indeed very important. Very important. The first one is a growing faith. The second one is an abounding love. And the third is a perseverance in persecution. You see, you can see why right now they would not be very popular. Nobody really cares. They don't want to listen to that. I mean, don't give us that. We want something that's really powerful and exciting and it'll fill the pews. But this is what Paul says is the mark of a faithful church. You want to look at a faithful church? You want to see what a God-dwelt church looks like? This is it. It's growing in his faith. Look at verse 3. We are bound, he says, to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly. The word bound in verse 3 has the idea of being obligated or indebted. In other words, there is so much good here among the people of Thessalonica in this church that he is obligated to speak up and to praise it. I shared this with our church this morning, and that is this. You know, so often we as believers are hesitant to give praise or encouragement to someone because we say, quote, we don't want to make their head big. We don't want to make them prideful. But Paul was not concerned about that. He would praise the people of God. He would give them encouragement. He would give them thanks. He would give bounding praise toward what they were doing and how they were walking with Christ. Our obligation is to encourage one another with that, not to worry about whether or not their head's going to soil. They can take care of that themselves, and God's Holy Spirit will take care of that. We need to make sure we encourage one another, as Paul did, on a continual basis. And he says, I'm obligated. I'm bound up. I'm indebted to make sure that I tell you that I am so very thankful all the time that your faith grows exceedingly. The word faith, what does it mean? Well, it can mean the content of faith. He could mean the faith in the sense that he's talking about what we believe, you know, the, ACB, the ABCs or the theology or what we know about God and Christ and 
salvation and heaven and hell and things like that. And that's probably one thing he has in mind, but that's not all that he has in mind. And by the way, before I leave this point, I want to point this out, is that, think about this. This church had only had about three weeks at the most of Paul there. Timothy, I'm sure, has gone back. We don't know how long he stayed. There would have been some interaction there, some teaching. But even at that time, Timothy is a, is a pupil. He's a disciple. He's learning himself. So these people don't have anything but the Old Testament. And they have it because they can basically look at it and listen to it being read at the synagogue. So they don't have a bookstore to go to. They don't have a YouTube channel to turn on. They don't have a sermon they can download. They don't have a book they can read. They have none of that. And yet the Bible tells us they were growing exceedingly. A lot of it has to do, I believe, with what was happening in the early New Testament church where the apostles were spreading the truth and teaching not just one hour a day, but daily all the time. They were literally filling the people of God with the words of God and instructing them. And maybe God was giving some help for them to remember it as the church got started. But they were learning, they were growing exceedingly in the content of what they believed. But I think more importantly, what Paul has in mind is that they were growing in the exercise of their faith. In other words, their faithfulness. Or their, another way of saying it is they were growing in their trust of God in the midst of their persecution. The word that is translated to grow exceedingly is a compound word. Paul loves to do that. He'll take a normal word that is used in other parts of the New Testament, then he'll add a preposition on front of it, and the intent is to make it that much more intense. He took a Greek word, oxano. Oxano means to grow. It's used in the uh, New Testament even in the Gospels of the growing of plants, the growing of babies. But then he adds the word pair on top of that word and makes it that much more intensive so that they are increased above measure, growing way beyond their bounds. Or the idea is that you are increasing above measure because you're planted in very good soil and you're producing a lot of fruit because of that. This exponential growth happened because it was directly tied to their persecution. You need to understand that. It wasn't because things were good. It wasn't because things were easy. It wasn't because, you know, everything was going great and they had finally found their place in the society. And maybe perhaps the Jewish synagogue had accepted them and maybe some of their culture had accepted them or tolerated them. No, no, no. The reason why their faith or their trust in God was growing exponentially was because the persecution was pushing it. It was making it happen. And I'll be frank with you. We don't grow as much in a culture like we live in. We have a nice place to sit, comfortable pews, air-conditioned environment. We have a nice car to drive home on. We go to air-conditioned homes. We get up, we go to a job, we make a paycheck, we go to the grocery store. Everything already packaged and ready for us to eat. We just have to prepare it, and we have to work very little to do that. I mean, we have it, like, so easy, right? And it's hard to grow in that environment. You can actually learn facts. You can you can learn a lot of details about theology. You can have a lot of time spent doing that. But I grant you, your faith will exponentially grow when your world falls apart. When you get that diagnosis that you have terminal cancer. Or your child tells you they don't believe what you believe. Or perhaps maybe you get that letter from your employer who says, you know what? We're not going to allow you 
to work for us anymore because you didn't take the vaccine. All of these things that we're going to see escalate in the future that are coming are going to be good for us. And I say good for us because it's going to grow our trust in God. It's going to grow our ability to trust Him more. It's so hard to trust God in the midst of an environment where you're literally given everything. But whenever things begin to fall apart and we don't have all of those things that we can fall back on anymore, there's going to be a great deal of growth in the church. Then there'll be another thing that's going to happen. As we all know, whenever those things do happen, the church will be purified. All the filled pews and pads of chairs that have all these hundreds and thousands of people gathering together to watch the light shows and the fog shows and all of that stuff, they're going to empty out. They're going to empty out. There's nothing there. There's no, there's, there's no stability. There's no strength. There's no grounding. There's no foundation. And they're going to walk away. I told our church a while back, probably two years ago now, if I keep the calendar right, that we were going to see a departure from churches. We're going to see churches, or people in churches, family in churches, leaving their traditional denominations and coming to a church and trying to find a church just like this church, just like our church, just like churches like it, because they're tired of the show. They're tired of the shallowness. They want something with substance, something that's going to hold them when they go through the hard times and the difficult times. And frankly, that's what we're seeing. Literally every family that comes to our church without exception tells us this. And we on average have two to three families a week now. I don't know what's going on, but they show up every week. And they'll tell us we're just not getting fed. There's just nothing there. And they're tired of it. And that's where it's going. God wants us to grow. This church was growing exceedingly, not because it just had content, not just because it had the Apostle Paul as their teacher. It was growing because God had put them in a situation where literally their faith was being tested and tested to the limit. If you remember what it said in Romans 8, that we're never going to be separated from the love of Christ, right? Romans 8 verse 35. It even asked the question, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then he goes on and answers this question by saying, for your sake, we're killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Well, what kind of answer is that? What he's saying is that the tribulation, the distress, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, the peril and the sword, that's what we're made for. That's what God has destined us for. It should be a daily thing for us to go through and to experience. We literally should not be shocked that we're accounted as a sheep for the slaughter. We are bound for persecution because God has intended for persecution to grow our faith, to grow our trust in God. Listen to these words from the psalmist in Psalm 119. These are beautiful words to remember. Psalm 119, 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. How about that? Psalm 119, 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 119, 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So the next time we meet around the corner 
another serious problem we will all face, you have to just stop for a moment and remind yourself of one of the characteristics of a faithful church is that God grows their faith in the midst of persecution, hostility, and problems, which is what God desires for all of us. Well, let's take our attention now as we think about the Lord's Supper, which is another wonderful privilege we have as the people of God to gather around and to remind ourselves of the most important event in the history of the world, which is the death of Christ, or more importantly, the life and the death of Christ. The Bible tells us that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as often as we do it, and we come together, that we should always examine ourselves to make sure, first of all, that we're in the faith. You know, even though we may be small in number, I never want to assume that all of us in here are saved. And I want to encourage you that if you feel anything in your heart in the sense that you're not sure that you're saved, you're not sure if you've trusted Christ fully in your heart, you need to deal with that today. Don't put it off. Don't wait. If the Spirit of God is urging you and prompting you and showing you that need, you need to respond to the need that the Holy Spirit is giving you as He grants you faith and repentance to turn and embrace Christ as your Savior and Lord. Be saved today. Today is the day of salvation, as the Bible says. But also, if you're here today as a believer and you have not dealt with sin in your life, whatever it might be, it could be an attitude, it could be a thought, it could be a pattern in your life that you've developed over time, whatever it is, you need to just confess it to the Lord. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, then He is faithful and just or righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So even though we are positionally cleaned in Christ as a Christian, we are in Christ 100% holy. As we learn from the scripture, we still get our feet dirty in this world and we ask God to forgive us so that that fellowship between the Father and us and the fellowship between the Son and us and the fellowship between the Holy Spirit and us is renewed. We want to make sure we live a life that is honoring to him in every way possible and to confess our sin so that we prepare our hearts for the reception of the Lord's table. So let's take a moment and pray together. Our Father, we thank you for today. Again, another beautiful day to gather together in this place to worship. Lord, we thank you that you have provided for us the freedom to do this now. That uh, we don't have anybody bashing in the doors to stop us. There's no threats on our lives to arrest us. But Lord God, we know that there are many parts of the world right now that are facing this very thing. And Lord, I do pray for those churches, the faithful churches, that you would, that you would enable them, strengthen them. But for us here today, Lord, we come here to remind ourselves in this precious hour that you gave your life, that Jesus, the Son of God, came, lived a perfect life, died at the hands of evil and cruel men, a very unjust death. And he took upon himself our sin, and he was punished in our place for our sin. And Lord, that you poured your wrath, your all-sufficient wrath, on your own son to satisfy your justice and to satisfy the law and its demands. 
And Lord, today as we think about the body of Christ, that body that was given on our behalf, that was put on the cross, was beaten, the blood shedding from the body, a reminder that the forgiveness of sins comes by the shedding of blood. Lord, you gave your life through that body. We thank you, Lord, for the shedding of blood. Very vivid reminder of the life being poured out. And that, Lord, you poured your life out for us so that we could be forgiven. Thank you, Lord God, for this. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the people here. I pray your blessings on them. We give you thanks for the bread. We give you thanks for the juice we will drink. We give you praise for your wonderful grace and mercy in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.